of the Ryan Waldis Sports Podcast. It is Thursday, July 12th, 2018. We are back after a one-day hiatus, uh, so I didn't really know what to talk about uh, on the podcast yesterday. I looked up stuff, and nothing really piqued my interest. So instead of just putting out you know, a 30-, 40-minute podcast that I would not have been proud of, I decided to just wait a day and come back today on July 12th, and we have a whole hodgepodge of things that I'm going to talk about today on the Ryan Walter Sports Podcast. We're going to hit on a bunch of different things. We've got the NFL. I'm just reading off my rundown right now. we got NFL, little tennis, World Cup, minor league baseball, major league baseball, and we will end the podcast with some NASCAR. Big announcement for the podcast. You can now find it on CastBox. We got the email, or I, sh- I should say I got the email last night that said the podcast is now available on CastBox. You can see every previous episode as well as now any future episode on CastBox. And that raises the number of platforms that the Ryan Waldis Sports Podcast is available on to eight. You can now listen to us on Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, that's the new one, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. And we are still working on getting the podcast on some more services, mainly Apple. That's the one I'm really waiting on right now. I'm really going to uh, – that's that's the one I want at this point. Once I get it on Apple, I'm going to be very happy. But there's, uh, there's a few other services as well that I'm trying to get it on. But as of right now, there are eight possible services that you can listen to the Ryan Wallace Sports Podcast on. It just makes it a lot easier for all you out there to check it out on your favorite podcast you know, streaming site. Whichever one you really enjoy, it's it's probably on there. So if you check it out. Also, check out my website, RyanWaldis.com, and connect with me on social media. It's usually just my name, at Ryan Waldis, and talk to me about whatever you want. But as I said, a lot of stuff to talk about on the podcast today. We took one day off, and I am back today talking about a lot. So I will start in the NFL. So the the big thing that happened in the NFL yesterday was the supplemental draft uh, not would not surprise me unless you're you know really into the NFL. You probably were not even aware that the supplemental draft was yesterday. Obviously, it's nothing near like the NFL draft, which gets a lot of publicity and a lot of other stuff. Normally, if your team doesn't even pick a guy, you're not even aware that the supplemental draft uh, occurred. So the supplemental draft was yesterday, July uh, 11th. So basically, the supplemental draft uh, it's it's always held after the regular draft, right? So the regular draft is like April, May, somewhere in in that area. The supplemental draft is held sometime during the summer, you know, so several months after the the, the regular draft. And it's, it's basically a way for certain prospects to enter the draft if they don't want to wait another year, right? So it's not necessarily if you were a junior um, and then the draft goes by and you're like, oh, wait, I actually want to play. Um, instead of going back to college, it, it's not really like that. It's like, so hypothetically, if you just played your junior year and you were set to come back for your senior year, but then something happened or, you know, whatever, and you wouldn't have been able to play your senior year because you're ineligible or whatever, so you would have had to sit out a year. That's what this supplemental draft kind of allows players to do. And we, we've heard of supplemental draft success stories. You know, one of them is the guy in Terrell Pryor who got drafted by the Raiders. He came in as a quarterback. Then he transitions to wide receiver. Had that good year in Cleveland. Uh, then he went to to Washington as a free agent. Did not do very well there. So now he finds himself with the New York Jets. But, you know, there are some success stories when it comes to the supplemental draft. The supplemental draft also is not very big in terms of the number of players that are that are in it. It's usually pretty small. So this year, it's there was only five players. And in order, they were Adonis Alexander, who was a cornerback from Virginia Tech. Sam Beal, who was a cornerback from Western Michigan. Brandon Bryant, who was a safety from Mississippi State. Martavius Carter, who was a running back from Grand Valley State. And the final guy was a linebacker from Oregon State, Bright Ugawegbu, as I said, linebacker from Oregon State. So those were the only five guys available in the in the supplemental draft uh, this year. So the way it works, uh, there's there's two parts to it. So the first part is determining the order. Now, it's not the same as the regular NFL draft where the team with the worst record gets number one overall pick in the supplemental draft to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, the Browns will get the number one pick. Uh, in each of these supplemental draft rounds. It doesn't work like that. So there's a lottery, and the lottery is separated into into three different areas. So uh, I believe it's teams that had six or fewer wins 
the teams that did not make the playoffs that don't fall in the six or fewer win range, and then the playoff teams. I think that's how it goes. And so it's it's weighted differently depending on what group you're in, and then that's how the lottery um, is done, and that's how the draft order for the supplemental draft is determined. Now, there's several rounds in the in the supplemental draft. Typically, you will never see someone... I, I'm not. I'll say typically, you'll never see someone take uh, a prospect uh, in the supplemental draft in the first round because the way it works in the supplemental draft. So let's say you take a guy. Uh, let's say you take Josh Smith in the in the fourth round of the supplemental draft. That means that in next year's NFL draft, you don't have your fourth round pick because you used it in this year's supplemental draft. So that's why you'll never see someone take a guy in the first round. Now we've seen people take players in the second round the most notable of that was Josh Gordon the Cleveland Browns took Josh Gordon in the second round of the supplemental draft in in 2012 but normally you're going to wait to see guys you know drafted around at the third round it's kind of the the spot where everything starts so normally uh, more often than not the first two rounds you won't see anybody picked it's very rare third round is when things get started and then you know you start to get see guys selected from from that point on In the supplemental draft yesterday, there were two players selected, and both of them were in the NFC East. So a pair of NFC East teams decided to take a chance here in the supplemental draft. The first one occurred in the third round when the New York Giants selected cornerback Sam Beal out of Western Michigan in the third round. So the Giants do not have their third round pick in the NFL draft next year. Sam Beal, the cornerback, so he stands at about six feet tall. He's a little under 200 pounds. He came in at 187, I think, uh, at the combine. Uh, he's he's going to be a solid addition to that to that team. So you take a look, excuse me, at how the the Giants line up at defensive back. You obviously have Janoris Jenkins, the guy that the Giants signed from the Rams a couple off seasons ago. Uh, you have Eli Apple, who had a, a solid rookie campaign, but last year, of course, he dealt with a, a lot of stuff. Uh, and he had a very poor season, did Eli Apple. You look at the rest of that cornerback depth chart, you have William Gay, who they signed as a free agent this this offseason. Uh, they signed him from Pittsburgh. You had Teddy Williams, who they brought in as a free agent from Carolina. B.W. Webb, who they brought in as a free agent from Cleveland. And then you have Dante Dian, who was an undrafted free agent a couple seasons ago. Uh, so you add Sam Beal into that, and I think it's fair to say that he has you know a real chance to be uh, in the top four, if not maybe like a nickel corner or something like that. I know that especially nowadays, teams kind of run out of the nickel on defense a lot. So I think there's a really good chance that, that Beal kind of gets that. He's, a t- he's 21 years old uh, right now, as I said. He was taken in the supplemental draft. There's The main issue with him is is his speed. Um, so he has he's athletic, and he has a chance to really showcase that at the NFL level, but there's obviously a difference between being athletic and being just very fast. Beal is not extremely fast. Um, I think it, once he gets to the NFL, it's fair to say that at least against some receivers with speed, he's going to struggle against them. I kind of think about him like a Jalen Mills um, as an Eagles fan in that sense to where Jalen Mills, you know, he's he's a good cover corner, but when it comes to the, the, the fastest receivers in the league, he's going to struggle. I see that with Sam Beal too. Uh, I think the issue, too, that we'll have to worry about that we'll have to watch early on is, you know, how many pass interference penalties he gets, especially now when the officials are kind of flag happy. And I imagine they're going to be even more flag happy this year since it's kind of an inexperienced group. I believe they're adding seven new officials this season, so they might be a little flag happy. Beal kind of has a tendency to, you know, whether it's because he's too physical or he's just trying to grab onto the receiver because they they beat him off off the break. Uh, he he could potentially have a problem with drawing too many pass interference penalties, um, so that's something you have to watch out for. But that's that does that's not to say that Sam Beal is not an a not an intriguing prospect. Uh, there's a, a lot of good things uh, about him. Obviously, he's six feet tall, so he has the he has the height right. As I said, he's he's even though he's not necessarily really fast, he's athletic, so he can do a lot of different things on the field. I think his biggest strength is that he doesn't really lose sight of the ball to where you see some of the cornerbacks in today's NFL. They'll be on a receiver, but then they they kind of lose sight of where the ball is. Um, they're more focused on the receiver than where the ball is. Uh, Sam Beal, that's not an issue with him. It seems like he always knows, at least in the in the brief you know video that I've seen of him, it seems like he doesn't really lose track of where the ball is. He kind of knows where it is at all times. 
when the ball is thrown to him, he kind of has, you know, pretty solid. He, he's pretty solid when the ball is thrown to him. It's not, it's not an issue. So he had two interceptions and 10 pass breakups a, a year ago at, at Western Michigan. He can tackle. As I said, he's physical, and that's a bad thing, but it can also be a good thing. And because of his height and his physicality, big receivers can't just, you know, get right by him. He'll give him, he'll give him a little trouble. So I like that pick uh, for the for the Giants. I know I'm, as an Eagles fan, I'm supposed to say, "Oh, he'll never do anything." I like that pick for the for the New York Giants. I think that Sam Beal is going to definitely be a very good contributor for for that team. Uh, I think it was definitely worth losing their third round pick next year to get a guy like a Sam Beal in uh, at at cornerback. As I said, he'll definitely be in their top four, and I'd be. I'd be shocked if he doesn't get at least some time in their in their group of three, their top three cornerback group at, at some point this year. So that was the first pick in the supplemental draft. There was only one other pick in the supplemental draft. So out of the five players, there were only two that were selected. The other one was the cornerback from Virginia Tech, Adonis Alexander. Uh, you take a look at a guy like an Adonis Alexander. He is even taller than than Sam Beal. So he came in at 6'2 and just a tick under 200 pounds at 199. Uh, you take a look at uh, where he kind of fits in right now with the with the Washington Redskins secondary. So at cornerback, you obviously bring in Josh Norman from Carolina a couple off seasons ago. You have Quentin Dunbar, who was an undrafted free agent a few years ago. He came out of Florida. Uh, then you, you go further down the list. You bring in Orlando Scandrick, a free agent from Dallas this offseason. You draft Greg Stroman in the seventh round. You bring in Joshua Holsey as the seventh-round pick last year, and you also bring in Fabian Morrow as a third-round pick from UCLA in, in 2017. Adonis Alexander, I think he'll definitely make the team uh, out, of, out of camp. Uh, I think he has the potential to be also in that top four with the, with the Redskins. The Redskins, obviously, they have a very good linebacking core um, with guys like Ryan Kerrigan, Zach Brown, who they brought in from Buffalo last year, and then their second-round pick in 2015, Preston Smith. They have a, a very good linebacking group. Uh, I think where they could use some help, obviously, is on the edge um, to get some edge rushers and also uh, in the secondary, especially at, at cornerback. But I think Adonis Alexander definitely kind of helps in, in that regard. You take a look at the Skyhung report for a guy like an Adonis Alexander. He is tall. Uh, he's another guy that's kind of, at, you know, he has that potential to be athletic, I think, in the, in the right system. Another guy who can tackle well. Um, good hands, uh, soft hands, uh, I should say, um, according to, you know, the scouting reports, he, it's, he's a guy that I think, uh, if, you know, the Eagles were kind of active in the supplemental draft, I would have liked to see them maybe, you know, take a chance. He had seven interceptions and 17, bra- uh, pass breakups with, uh, Virginia Tech in his three years there. Uh, the thing that is gonna, you know, kind of, the reason he got drafted is really his length, uh, especially because he'll be able to, he's a guy that can kind of play, on the outside, it depends what kind of scheme uh, you play him in. I think as a man cornerback, he'd probably be he'd probably be pretty solid. I think kind of as you know someone in a zone, or if you're trying to tell him to play off man, it's you're probably not going to have uh, a great time, right? Because even though he has you know he can be athletic, there's times when he's just you watch him out on the field, and you're like, wow, that guy looks really. It's like he's not moving very well. Uh, so there's times when he's kind of you know a little stiff out there on the on the field. Uh, he doesn't have the, the he he has speed issues too, just like with Sam Beal. So I'm sure that there's going to be fast corner uh, wide receivers, I should say, that can get past a guy like an Adonis Alexander. But it's just when you get a, a cornerback that's you know close to six two, six three, a guy that's really physical, um, a guy that's really strong. There's you know it's. It, you you got to take a chance to draft him. There's a there's a spot for guys like him. Are they going to be you know Are they going to be able to, to contain the best wide receiver in the wide receivers in the league? No, Adonis Alexander is never going to be in that group. But I think he could be a solid you know guy in your in your secondary in your top three or four cornerbacks on the on the roster. So I, I as I said, he'll make the team out of camp for for sure. I'd be comfortable saying that, and I I think that at some point in the season he'll kind of make it up to that you know fourth uh, at worst uh, group guy in the in the Redskins cornerback group so the Redskins took him in the sixth round that means they no longer have their sixth round pick for the 2019 NFL draft but that is a that is a solid trade-off those were the only two players that that got picked um, in the supplemental draft Uh, there was one guy I think it was Brandon Bryant who said that he was in discussions with a 
with one of the with the, one of the teams in the league. I can't uh, remember which one it is off the top of my head. I should probably have that up. But he was in conversations, and then the other two, uh, Martavius Carter and Ugawebu from Oregon State, they are going to be in the free agent pool. So I'm sure that they'll get a look from you know at least one team around the league. At least you know someone's going to bring both of them in to be at worst a camp body and at best, you know, maybe they'll make a team, but Alexander and Beal, the only two players selected in the 2018 supplemental draft. And that's really all I wanted to talk about with the, with the NFL. As I said, we have a lot of stuff to talk about uh, today. So we're going to move on to something that we have not talked about yet on the Ryan Waldis sports podcast, something new, uh, a new sport that we have not talked Well, not a new sport, but it's a sport that we haven't talked about yet. And that is tennis. So Wimbledon is currently going on. I think Wimbledon is my is my favorite tennis major of the year. Uh, I don't know. I think maybe it's just because it's in the summer, and I just I have a lot of memories of just watching it, you know, all throughout the summer um, growing up. Uh, I, I just playing on grass. The atmosphere there is uh, incredible. I would love to be able to to take in a match live there at Wimbledon. That's kind of I don't really have a bucket list, but that's something I would love to be able to do at some point but before I die. Just go over there and just see a match live. would be It would be a phenomenal experience, I think. It seems like everyone else says it's a phenomenal experience. So a little uh, quarterfinal discussion. There are uh, a couple of matches uh, in depth. Well, maybe not in depth, but that I kind of want to that I kind of want to talk about. The first one that I want to talk about is the one where my boy Roger Federer. Got upset, so Roger Federer came into this as the as the one seed, uh, I guess you could say, but he loses to the eight seed Kevin Anderson. Uh, he loses in five sets, and it was tough for Federer, right? Because he he immediately goes up. Uh, he he was up six uh, two in the first set, so he wins the first set. He wins the second set in a tiebreak seven six. So he's up six two seven six. Um, so he's up two sets to nothing and you're watching and you're kind of thinking, all right, Federer, he's, he's got this in the bag. He just has to win one of these next three sets and, and he moves on to the, to the semis. Um, and, but then it's, everything started to go kind of awry and especially the third set. It's it, I don't know. It, it, it so I, I can't, I have to preface all this by saying that I am by no means a tennis expert. Like I can't. I can't watch a match in depth and tell you, oh, he should did this instead of that, or you know, I can't do something like that. I'm a, um, when it comes to tennis, it's kind of like me and soccer, whereas I enjoy watching it, but I'm a very casual viewer in that, you know, I'm not the guy that's going to be able to give you that expert analysis. From the casual fans' perspective, I will say this: it's it kind of seemed like Federer fell apart in the in the third set, which is weird because then he comes back in the fourth set and he looked, you know, a little better. But the third set, he just made a lot of errors that it seemed like you, like let's say five years ago, you wouldn't have seen. And obviously that's going to happen. He's getting older. Um, retirement, it's it's going to be a question for until he ends up retiring. I know he talked about it back in back in June to where like he'll know when it's time to retire. He said it's it, you know the day is sooner than it's ever been. Um, but he just doesn't know when exactly that'll happen. Obviously, he's inching closer to 40. I think he's 36 right now. So he's getting close to that point where we kind of wonder, all right, his age finally starting to catch up to this guy. And the third side, it looked like it did. He was just making a lot of errors, especially uh, on his forehand. It just seemed like, I, I, I don't know, it just seemed like he wasn't like his normal his normal self in the third set. Um, so he loses the third set, 7-5. Um, you move to the, to the fourth set, uh, he loses 6-4. Then the fifth set... Um, obviously, it was uh, extremely entertaining. Uh, he loses at 13-11. So Kevin Anderson comes back down from two sets to nothing, and he wins in in five sets, three to two, and he moves on to the to the semifinals where he's going to face John Isner. John Isner defeated the uh, Canadian in in his semifinal match or his quarterfinal match. Excuse me. Isner lost the the first set seven six, but then he won the next three sets seven six six four six three. To move on, I don't know. Federer, uh, he was he was very gracious. I'll say this: Federer was very gracious, as he always is. He's always been this kind of guy. He was very gracious in his in his post match press conference, and he gave a lot of press conferences. The guy's uh, bilingual, so I think he gave like uh, an uh, a discussion in English. He did one in like German and Swiss, and just like several different languages. Could not have been more gracious. But even when you're watching the press conference, he seemed. Um, I don't think surprise is the the right adjective but he seemed like 
you know, it, maybe, I, I guess I'll say shocked because he was kind of at a loss for words. He's like, I don't know. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, that's obviously, I, I don't have the, the full quote in front of me, but he was kind of at a loss of words as to how he, he blew a 2-0 lead as the one seed against Kevin Anderson. And give credit to Kevin Anderson. You know, he's a solid tennis player as, as well. And now he's kind of, you know, catapulted up to the forefront by beating Roger Federer, you know, in his home stadium. Essentially, this was this was Federer's court for so many years, basically, uh, the, the course at Wimbledon. So it's it was very surprising. I was really invested in this match. That was, that was also part of the reason why I didn't do a podcast yesterday. I was just so invested in Wimbledon. Uh, I, I'm watching that. I look at the clock. I'm like, oh, shit. I, I didn't do a podcast yet. So that, that was another part of the reason as well, um, along with not just not not really knowing what to what to talk about. I think it was tough, too, because there were uh, instances where Federer had a match point possibility and he just could not convert. Um, which is which was a shame because it's it, there were multiple times he was he was right there he had a chance to close everything out he was right there multiple times and he he just couldn't do it so uh, myself along with many others were hoping for uh, a rematch in the finals you know kind of like uh, it, it was kind of being marketed well not marketed that's not the right adjective but it was kind of being you know oh a ten year anniversary because obviously back in two thousand eight. That was the the incredible match between Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal that lasted uh, extremely long. I actually, I forget where I read the story. It, it wasn't The Ringer, but it was one of those sites. And they did a really nice um, recap of it, you know, in hindsight. Uh, it, was, it was an incredible read. I, I actually watched, I've been watching the entire match on YouTube uh, over the past several days because that was uploaded uh, onto Wimbledon's official channel. So I've been watching, obviously, the, the entire video is six hours long, so I can't watch the whole thing in one sitting, but I've been watching a little bit of it, little by little. And even then, you know, as a young kid in 2008, what was I in? Two th- so in 2008, I would have been, I was that summer, uh, I just finished fifth grade, so I was going to go into sixth grade um, that year. So 2008, like, obviously I was a very young kid at, at that point, but even then I could kind of tell like, wow, these guys, these are going to be two of the best to, to ever do it. Just the, the way both of them do it. And it's kind of interesting too, uh, because it, both of them, uh, I, I want to backtrack off of Wimbledon for a second to talk about the 2008 match. They, they play tennis a different way, right? Like everybody knows that where Federer, he's kind of like, you know, the, the prof- I don't, professionals, not like, I don't know, really know how to describe this. Cause I'm not like a, as I said, I'm a casual tennis guy. You know, I've played a, a few times back in the day. Uh, it's actually, I'm actually, I, I got a racket that's coming in the mail uh, tomorrow because I'm playing a, a certain person. I know that they uh, don't listen to this podcast, but I'm really looking forward to it because they play tennis like in high school and they're apparently really good. So I want to, you know, I said, uh, I think I could take you, uh, it, I think I can take one set off of you. So I'm really interested to see. Uh, if I can do it, I'm really looking forward to uh, to the match whenever we end up playing. But um, it's just Federer is like kind of like this professional, right? Like he has like this finesse uh, about him and this nice aura about him. Like it, a lot of the stuff he does, he makes it look so effortless. Whereas Nadal, on the other hand, he he kind of reminds me of just like a guy that's you know he it's I don't know how to describe it. It's like he he kind of reminds me of like someone like me who like he puts so much effort into into what he does and everything he does it's like i'm going to use like some really great cliches it's like gritty and scrappy and stuff like that and that's not a knock on the dog obviously he's like this really professional guy too he's extremely talented but it's just the two different play styles you see out on the court and you know as as a kid you don't really realize that but now watching it back um now as i said uh, it's it's a lot different i can kind of see things i didn't see um 10 years ago but we will not, unfortunately, we will not get that rematch. We, I guess, we'll have to wait maybe another year, um, see if they kind of meet up in Wimbledon again next year, next summer. But Roger Federer gets upset by Kevin Anderson um, in five sets. He had the 2-0 lead, and it, uh, he, he lost it. I'm not going to say he choked, but he, he lost it. And now Kevin Anderson will be playing John Isner, the American in the semifinals, that match takes place tomorrow at 8 a.m. Eastern time. So if you are interested in watching, 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Central. Um, it'll be at 5 a.m. on the West Coast. So if you are so inclined to wake up at 5 a.m. Uh, tomorrow, uh, definitely do it. I know I'm going to wake up early to uh, to watch you know, some of these matches, especially the 
the second semifinal match, um, which I'm going to get into in a second. So Djokovic, uh, no surprise, beat Anish Kori in four sets. It was not extremely competitive, 6-3, 6-3, or 6-3-3-6, 6-2-6-2. Djokovic, the, the 12th seed, moves on to the semifinals, and he played the winner. He will play the winner of the quarterfinal match between Juan Martin Del Potro and Rafael Nadal. Nadal won in five sets. Nadal was down two sets to one. So he won the first set 7-5. He loses the second set 7-6. There was a 9-7 tiebreaker. He loses the third set 6-4. So his back is against the wall, but then he wins the fourth and fifth set 6-4, 6-4. And, uh, you know, some people were saying that even though we don't get a Nadal, um, we don't get a Nadal-Federer, the Nadal Del Potro match, which lasted close to close to five hours, was uh, you know that's a, that's a nice consolation prize. I was really enjoying watching that uh, Nadal and Del Potro. Uh, it's I don't know, it was a lot of fun, especially like as a casual tennis viewer, right? Just watching Nadal and Del Potro go at it. It was you know it was interesting. I was happy to see Nadal. Nadal has uh, he's my favorite tennis player, uh, I guess you could say. Uh, I respect Federer and what he does. He's he's right up there. I guess you could say they're like 1A, 1B, but my 1A is definitely Nadal. I don't know. I was just always drawn to his play style um, as a kid, so I've always been rooting for him as, uh, you know, as I've grown up. Uh, I really like what he does on the court, especially after he beats an opponent. So, obviously, you beat an opponent, you're obviously happy, but the other guy on the other end of the court, you know, they're they're obviously um, upset, they're dejected. So I always like what Rafa did, you know, especially after the the match like this, you know, gave Del Potro a nice hug and, and everything. And even after he beat Federer back in 2008, you know, he consoled him, and it, it, was, it was just nice to see. Uh, Nadal is a, a class guy on and off the court on it. Obviously, he's very competitive, but as soon as the match ends, um, all that goes away, and he's just this really nice, awesome dude. So he he gets past Del Potro. That was a, a very fun match to watch. The two seed going up against the five seed, but Nadal outlasted him, and now he moves on to the to the semifinals. Uh, so the first semifinal matchup, as I said, is on uh, tomorrow, July thirteenth, at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, Kevin Anderson and John Isner, and the second matchup, the semifinal. This takes place at eleven o'clock in the morning. Will be Djokovic, the twelve seed, and Nadal, the the two seed. So uh, I'm not going to give any predictions. Because I am uh, not going to put myself out there. Uh, I get uh, well. I don't know. I guess it'll be kind of fun. So I'll go with. Uh, I guess I'll go with. Uh, I, I, I'll go with the American in, in John Isner, and then I'll go with Nadal. Uh, just because I'm a Nadal guy, so Nadal and Isner will be in the in the finals, um, which I'm definitely going to be looking forward to watching here coming up in a, in a few days. So that was a little tennis talk. The first time we have talked about tennis on the on the Ryan Waldis Sports Podcast. Uh, that's, uh, you know, a little look ahead, quarterfinals uh, discussion. The women's actually is currently going on right now as well, so I might touch on that uh, a little bit in an upcoming podcast. But I just want to get a little tennis on the show. You can kind of branch out a little bit because I always enjoy watching tennis, especially all the, the major events, you know, the Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon, U.S. Open. Uh, I, I don't know. I really enjoy watching it. Um, it's It's something that... No, I enjoy. It's I, I don't know. I never really knew why I enjoyed it, but as I got older, I just kind of developed a, an even an even greater appreciation for for tennis. Uh, I just I don't know. It seemed like a fun sport. I kind of wish I got into it even more when I was younger that, than I did. But as I said, I'm getting that racket in the mail tomorrow, and I'm going to be playing a certain person um, soon, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a, a lot of fun. Um, really looking forward to it. And then, you know, who knows, maybe I'll, you know, get to, get to play tennis against uh, some other people too. And maybe, you know, I'll get into it really looking forward to it, but that's all I want to talk about in terms of tennis. I also want to hit on the world cup, just, uh, just a little bit. Uh, as I said in my podcast with Nick Halper, uh, I guess it was exactly one week ago on Thursday, July 5th. Uh, I'm not the, the biggest soccer guy. I'm trying to get into it now as I, as I as I told him, Last Thursday, I finally found my Premier League team in, in Arsenal, so I'm looking forward to kind of watching the Premier League uh, this year. I've never really been, I you know, I've, I've watched it every now and then, but I never really had a team to root for, so I was like, okay, I mean, this is cool, but I don't really have an interest, uh, a rooting interest, obviously. But now I kind of found my team that I, I really want to root for in Arsenal, so I'm interested to finally start watching that this year. But, uh, you know, I, I've always watched the World Cup just because, you know, the best international teams come to play. Uh, for the casual fan, it's it's nice. Obviously, as a USA fan, uh, it's a little weird because they're not in it for 
you know, for the first time in my in my life, they they are not in it, which is unfortunate since I've started watching soccer, I should say. But uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been extremely entertaining. Uh, this is the most soccer I think I've watched uh, ever. So it's it's been a lot of fun. I gotta say, I can see why. I know some people are always gonna say, "Oh, soccer's boring. How can you?" watch 90 minutes of them ending 0-0 this that or the other I don't know I've kind of gained an appreciation for the for the sport watching the watching the World Cup so just want to touch on the semifinals just very briefly because um, I said I'm not a huge soccer guy so I can't really uh, give you you know the the next level of analysis but as a casual fan I can kind of say um, you know maybe what I'm thinking so the first semifinal um, match number 61 on the docket was French and Belgium France got there via a 2-0 win over Uruguay in the quarterfinals, and Belgium got their via 2-1 win over the favorites Brazil, um, and they both advanced. So France and Belgium in the semifinals, and France won the game one goal to nil. Both teams kind of utilizing that 4-2-3-1 setup. Belgium controlled the possession. I believe it was 60-40, but France just got a lot of shots on net. The exact total they got 19 shots on on goal. Uh, or they got 19 shots, five of them were on goal, whereas you look at Belgium, they were only able to get nine shots. Uh, only three of those were on goal, despite the fact that they had 60% of the possession time, whereas France only had 40%. France got a goal in the 51st minute, so that was really, that was all they needed. Uh, they won the game 1-0, advancing to the World Cup final Um Based on that goal, Belgium had 16 fouls. France only had six. Uh, Belgium had five corner kicks, so they had their opportunities. They just were not able to to capitalize. France, meanwhile, had four corner kicks. Kicks, I should say, as I forget how to how to talk. Um, Belgium had three yellow cards. France only had two. Um, so France, they have uh, they've looked phenomenal so far through this World Cup run, and they have made it to the World Cup final. Uh, I'm not sure how many people predicted that um, at the at the start. I know I certainly did not predict France to go all the way, but as I said, I'm a casual fan, so what the hell do I know? They find themselves now in the final against Croatia. Croatia, the 62nd match of the, of the World Cup. Croatia found themselves in there after a win against Russia in a penalty kicks. So that was tied 2-2. And then the extra time was not good enough, so they find themselves in penalty kicks against Russia, and they win 4-3 to three in PKs and advance to the semifinals. So they defeat the host Russia and move on to play England. England found themselves in the semifinals via a 2-0 win over Sweden um, in the in the quarterfinals. It led a lot of England fans to think that, you know, the cup was, it's coming home. That's all I saw on Twitter for, you know, several days. Oh, it's coming home. It's coming home. It's coming home. And uh, it did not come home this year. Sorry to say, England fans, it did not come home. You, you, the thing that will be coming home is the team after they play in the in the third place uh, game on July 14th. But the World Cup will not be coming home as England lost two to one to Croatia after extra time. Uh, believe it or not, uh, so Croatia won two to one. They got a goal in the 68th minute that tied it up one one. So England scored very quickly in um, five minutes in. But uh, they so they set the tone, and as a casual, I'm like, oh, okay, good. That's that's probably a good thing that you scored that early on. Uh, it kind of gives you the momentum. But uh, Croatia is set tied in the 68th minute, and then in the 109th minute, Croatia scored another goal, put them up two to one, and obviously that was that was all they needed um, to to advance to the to the World Cup final. The possession was a little more even than it was in the in the France Belgium game. So Croatia had possession 54% of the of the match. England had it for 46%. Croatia had a ton of shots compared to England. Croatia had 22 shots. Seven of them were on goal. England had 11 shots. Only one of them though were actually on the net. So that's uh, you can you could see why uh, England kind of struggled uh, in this in this matchup. Croatia had 23 fouls. England only had 14. Uh, Croatia had eight corner kicks. England only had four. England forced to make five saves. So it was, once again, it was another really fun match to, to watch as a as a casual fan. Uh, I, I, did, I did not have a rooting interest. I did I really did not care who won either uh, this matchup. I was kind of rooting for French just because I took French for, for three years in, in high school. So I was like, okay, cool. I guess I'll root for the French. Why not? Allez le bleu. But... Uh, 
yeah, I did not really have a rooting interest in Croatia and England's match, and but Croatia ends up going on to win. So your World Cup final, uh, two teams with blue, red, and white flags. France will be going up against Croatia on July 15th. That match is at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, the third place match will be held the day before, of course, on July 14th when Belgium will be taking on England. So, you know, maybe for England, you know, they can take the third place win home, but they will not be taking the World Cup home this year. World Cup has been very entertaining to the to a to a casual fan, I'm sure, for the more in you know, the more hardcore soccer fans, they've enjoyed it as well. At least it seems like they have. But as a casual fan, I can definitely say that I have enjoyed the the World Cup and I'm interested to Really looking forward to getting into to soccer um, this year, especially with the the Premier League. I don't really have an MLS team. Uh, I guess I could choose Philadelphia, but uh, I don't know. It seems like they are uh, not the the best team to to select. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe I'll start watching the MLS at some point. I've been told to never to watch the MLS. I've also been told to definitely check it out because it's different than it used to be. Uh, I don't know who to who to believe, but uh, anyway, Premier League team, go Arsenal. Day one fan right here. Love the Arsenal. Always have loved uh, Arsenal. Um, looking forward to watching them finally uh, starting this Premier League season. France-Croatia, July 15th, 11 a.m. Eastern. So that was a little World Cup discussion. Uh, it was not as in-depth as some people um, would be able to, to talk about, but I feel for a casual fan, that was that was all right. I mean, that was all right, right? You know, that was all right. Moving now to something I know a little bit more about, uh, minor league baseball. So, so far we've talked about the NFLs and the supplemental draft. We talked about Wimbledon and the fact that I'm going to be playing tennis against someone that's much better than I am um, pretty soon, which I'm really looking forward to. And the World Cup, we've talked about that. And now we will move on to minor league baseball. Heck yeah. The AA All-Star game was last night at Arm & Hammer Park in Trenton. So right near me, if I really wanted to, I guess I could have uh, gone to see it. I imagine it was very crowded, but uh, it would have been a, a neat experience. It was held in Trenton, uh, the home of the Thunder, um, the AA affiliate of the New York Yankees. Uh, Tim Tebow was was there. He made the Eastern League All-Star team. And uh, what other way, really, to introduce yourself than to double in, in your first at-bat in the in the All-Star game, that's exactly what Tebow did. He gets a double. Now, he doesn't reach base again for the rest of the game. He strikes out once. But the, the double looked very nice. I got the video of this swing in front of me. His swing looks a lot better than it did when we saw, like, that workout video that he did when he when all the scouts were there. It looks a lot better than it did at, at that point. So it kind of raises the question uh, that everyone has been asking. Is this guy ever going to reach the majors? Is this just publicity thing, this, that, or the other? So you look at how Tim Tebow is doing this year, just uh, just overall. So he's played 76 games. He has 267 plate appearances. He's hitting 270, 337, 390. That's good for, for an OPS of 727. He has five home runs. He's stolen a base. Uh, and he has, I'm looking for the numbers, 95 strikeouts to, to 21 walks. So... Uh, you look at how he did last year, it is far and away uh, an improvement over what he did just uh, a season ago when he played for the Mets uh, mid-A affiliate and then the high affiliate. And, of course, then they they bring him, they promote him to double-A this year. And I've seen so many people say, oh, he's 30. He's actually going to be 31 in a month on August 14th. Oh, he's 30. Of course, he's going to be doing this against guys that are 10 years younger than him at least. And for most people, that's fine. That's understandable. But... I think people have to understand this was a guy who has not played competitive baseball since high school. He took a t- literally uh, over a decade break from playing any sort of competitive baseball. And then he comes in, um, as at the time he was 29, now he's 30. Um, he comes in um, kind of, you know, I'm not going to say wet behind the ears, but there was a lot of stuff that, you know, not just anybody could do what he's doing. So it, number one, it speaks to you know how athletic and talented he is. But you you look at his improvement from year one to year two. It's been incredible. Like this is something that nobody had expected. Like to have a seven twenty seven OPS after not playing baseball for as long as he did is is incredible. It, it, it even to to go back just to last year is something I said on Twitter when when he was playing. For the for the the mid A affiliate for the Mets, the fact that he had a 6.48 OPS after not playing for as long as he, for as long as he did, it's it was it was mind blowing. And people are gonna say, oh well, that's not that great for someone that hasn't played baseball in ten years. That's phenomenal. That is really good. 
And I look at Tebow this year in his last 10 games before the before the All-Star break, he was hitting 353. This guy has done, you know, better than I think anybody thought that he was ever going to do. So you look at how he's doing it. His BABIP is 423, which that is extremely high. Now, I have not been able to watch a lot of Tim Tebow play minor league baseball, so I don't know why his bat is that high. I don't know if he's really getting lucky. I don't know if he's just hitting the ball really hard and it's just finding, you know, a lot of grass. I, I don't know. I, I can't say I know why his bat is that high, but that's that's part of the reason why he's slashing 273, 37, 390. His weighted on base average is 331. Per WRC+, Plus, he's been an above-average contributor at the plate, um, 105. So that means he's been 5% better than the league average. He's hit five home runs this year. He hit eight last year. Um, the the one downside, he's walking in roughly 8% of his of his plate appearance, the 7.9% walk percentage. His strikeout percentage is 35.6. So he is striking out uh, a lot, which is, which is not good, especially moving up to the major leagues. That number would probably increase to close to 40%, if not more. But... It's still incredible to see what Tebow has has been able to do in his time as a minor league baseball player. Will he ever make the majors? Uh, it, you know, I I don't know. Uh, I'd like to think that there's going to be a point to where, you know, the Mets are just really out of it, and they're going to say, you know what, screw it, we're going to call him up and just, you know, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what he can do. So I think there's going to be a point to where Tebow does get called up to the major league roster. He's not going to be in the minors for forever. I think he's he's going to get at least one at bat. At the, at the major league level. Now, fielding-wise, he only has one error on the season down in down in AA. I don't know really. It, like, so there's not really any advanced metrics for, for something like that. So I don't know really how he's looked, you know, tracking down balls. I don't know if he's taking the correct routes. I don't know what his, what his zone rating would be. Uh, I, I don't know. So I don't know really if he's as smooth in the field as the statistics would suggest. As I said, he only has one error in 418 innings. So I don't know how good he's looked. I don't know how, you know, graceful he's looked in the outfield. But uh, regardless, uh, it seems like he's been doing pretty damn well for the Mets AA affiliate um, down in, or I should say up technically in uh, in Binghampton. So good for Tebow. I'm always, I'm happy to see him do well. Tebow is always one of my favorite athletes. Uh, I think when some people say, oh, this guy never really got a chance in the NFL, uh, I, I can't really agree with that. He did get a chance. He just was not very good. And I say that as a guy that loved Tebow and was really on the hashtag Tebow time movement um, when he brought the Broncos to the playoffs and they defeated the Steelers in the first round. You know, as, as someone that loved Tebow, uh, was very close to getting a Tebow jersey at, at that point if they weren't all sold out. Um, he did get a chance. He just wasn't very good. His mechanics did not translate to the NFL level. I will say they did improve because Tebow obviously was with the Eagles in, in 2015 in training camp. I will say that the his mechanics improved from the time he was drafted to the time he was with the Eagles, but it just he was a better college quarterback than NFL, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a reason why he was not in the league anymore. But I'm happy to see that he's kind of being successful in this Major League Baseball uh, endeavor. I think that he will make the majors at some point. I'm kind of happy to see that. You know, at, at least for now, it's kind of it's all working out for him. He's doing pretty well. He made a an and a double A All Star game, um, which is pretty cool. So it's you know it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to see what Tebow's been able to do after so so long away from the game, after devoting his life to football for so many years. It's nice to see that uh, Tebow's doing pretty well for himself. That's all I wanted to talk about really with minor league baseball. Just hit on Tim Tebow. Uh, now I want to move on to major league baseball. Um, obviously, All Star, uh, the couple day All Star week is is coming up uh, in less than a week. Uh, the home run derby was uh, their participants were announced. So you take a look at the at the participants. You have Jesus Aguilar, Kyle Schwarber, Max Muncie, Bryce Harper, Alex Bregman, Freddie Freeman, Reese Hoskins, and Javier Baez. Those are your eight participants in the 2018 T-Mobile home run derby. So you take a look at the bracket. On the left side of the bracket, you have Jesus Aguilar, the one seed, going up against Reese Hoskins, the eight seed. Uh, which I was very surprised. Uh, now I actually have a reason to to watch the home run derby because there's a Philly in it for the first time in a very long time. Alex Bregman uh, on it will be going up against Kyle Schwarber. That's the four five matchup on the left side of the bracket. On the right side of the bracket, you have Bryce Harper going up against Freddie Freeman. Uh, that's the two seven matchup, and then Max Muncie going up against Javier Baez in the three six. So that is the entire right side of the bracket. Um. 
the main concern I saw from from a lot of people was that there was a lack of a lack of big names, right? So they're like, "Oh, where is Aaron Judge? Where's Giancarlo Stanton? Where's Jose Ramirez? He said he wanted to do it. This, that, and the other." Um, they all turned down the invitation. Even p- people are up in arms about, "Oh, why could you? How do you not include a guy that said on the record that he wants to do it?" Um, without taking the time to research the fact that um, the Indians said that Ramirez could do it if he wanted to, but Ramirez turned it down. Um, so it's, I don't know, I think you just kind of have to understand that for some people, this is kind of like the, the NBA dunk contest, right? Like it's just, you know, you, the big a lot of the big names, they've done it already, so they don't want to do it again. It's not like it was back in the day. Um, and I think it's kind of cool that we get to see all these people that maybe the, the casual fan is not too familiar with. So, I can guarantee the casual fan uh, in baseball who, you know, they don't know maybe who Jesus Aguilar or Max Muncy were before the season started, but now they get a chance to see why these guys are in the home run derby, um, which is which is pretty neat. I kind of feel like if the ga- the uh, All-Star game was not in Washington, that Bryce Harper would not be participating. That's just a, I don't know, that's just a, a theory that I have. I don't know if it's true or not, but um, that's, he's really like the, him and Freeman, I guess, are the, the big names that are, that are uh, participating. And even even then, I'd say Harper is like the big name and then Freeman's like a step behind him. But uh, yeah, it's, it, I think it's cool to see like all these guys that maybe, you know, don't get, I'm not going to say they don't get the recognition, but maybe you don't hear about like a ton um, if you're a casual fan. So they get to participate in the home run derby. So I'm looking forward to it. Some people uh, were upset that there weren't any big names. I'm fine that there's no big names. I don't know. It's, it's neat to see. If you see, the, if, it's kind of a double-edged sword to where if they did have big names, but then you saw the same big names in the, the home run derby every year, then you'd have the people complaining, well, why can't we get some new players in? So it's, you know, it's it, it's it's a double-edged sword. Um, I'm happy to see some some new guys in there, especially Jesus Aguilar. Um, just, you know, he, he got in, um, and I'm going to get into that in a second, some new participants for the all-star game. He won the final vote. So not only will he, he be participating in the, in the home run derby, but he will be also be participating in the, in the all-star game, which is, which is really good. He deserves it. NL leader in home runs definitely deserves to be there. I'm looking forward to the home run derby. As I said, the first time a Philly has been in in a while. Uh, I know some people have said that, oh, it messes up their swing. And there's some truth to, to all that. Uh, we'll have to wait and see if anyone's swing does get messed up, but I don't know. It's it's a nice way to it's a nice fun thing to do thing to watch before the before the the actual All Star game the next night. So I will be looking forward to that uh, for sure. The other thing I want to talk about in terms of Major League Baseball was the was the All Star game. So there are some new participants um, for the for the All Star game. The first one I want to talk about is Ross Stripling, the 28 year old pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, who's kind of forced into being a starter because of the injuries to that Dodgers staff uh, early on in the in the season. This year so far, he's doing very well for himself. He has tossed 89 and a third innings. He has a 2.22 ERA, a FIP of 2.75. So he's really not getting, you know, all that lucky. Um, if you just look at look at it that way, he stranded 89% of the runners that have reached base. Um, he has struck out close to, to 10 batters per nine innings. So you take a look at his his strikeout rate, 28.7%. He's only walking 3.6% of the batters that he faces, which is a, which is a very good number. That's among the lowest marks in the league. Uh, a 57 ERA minus. He also has a nice FIP minus at 69. A very nice FIP minus 69. Uh, he's walking 1.31 batters per nine innings, 7.92 strikeouts per walk, and he's letting up about one home run every every nine innings. So you take a look. His home run to fly ball rate has gone down. It dropped four percent from last year. It dropped from 16.7 to to 12.7. Uh, his ground ball rate uh, had stayed pretty much the the same. Um, from 49.3 to 49.4, he's long less line drives, uh, about 4% less from 21.7 down to 17.3%. His infield fly ball rate has skyrocketed from eight, just 8% in 2017 to 16.5% in 2018. So that would kind of indicate that batters and stripling, they're kind of off balance a little bit this year. Uh, batters are pulling the ball a lot more against Stripling than they were previously. Last year, the pull percentage was 29.9%. This year, it was way up to uh, 38.4%. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just his, it, you, you look at his peripherals, it it, it kind of lends me to believe the fact that, you know, Stripling, you know, he might regress a little bit coming down the stretch for the Dodgers, but it's, I don't think it'll be, you know, terribly, terribly drastic. The one thing that we'll have to watch for is his are the amount of innings that the, he that he pitches? So I think his career high was in twenty. 
I want to say it was 2013 when he tossed like 120 innings between high A and double A, but I could be wrong about that. Um, this is just me doing quick math. I'm looking at his statistics. So that might have been his career high. Um, right now, of course, he's at 89 and third. So the Dodgers might have to watch his workload as the season goes on. I think they will. I believe I've read that they're going to go with a six-man rotation coming out of the All-Star break, which I think is good, especially because you're going to have a guy like a Walker Bueller in there who hasn't p- tossed a ton of innings in a season yet. You have a guy like a Ross Stripling. So I think it'll help all their starters for, for sure. And I'm sure that they'll go back to a five-man once, because uh, I'm sure one of them will end up getting injured uh, at some point. But uh, I think it's a good idea by Dave Roberts and the, and the Dodgers to go with a six-man rotation after the after the all-star break that's a that's a very solid decision the other guy in the nl a new addition jesus aguilar as i mentioned he won the final vote for the for the national league finished ahead of the uh the other guys in that vote he is having a phenomenal season something that nobody could have predicted nobody at all would have predicted that jesus aguilar would be doing as good as he is right now he is slashing 307 375 638 with a nice 420 weighted on base average and a WRC plus of 164. So if he can score home, that means he's been 64% better than the league average batter. And a leader in home runs with 23. He scored 47 runs. He's drawing a walk close to 10% of the time, 9.8% walk rate. He's striking out 26.4% of the time. His ISO is at 331, and his BAB is at 334, or 344, excuse me. So is regression coming for Jesus Aguilar uh, in the in the second half? Yeah, pro- probably a little bit. I think it's fair to say. Um, but if, overall, uh, I think that there's a lot of stuff in his peripherals to say that this performance is for real. So even if he does regress, it's not going to be drastic, um, and he'll still be a pretty solid contributor coming down the coming down the stretch during the stretch run for this Milwaukee Brewers team that's trying to hold off the the Cubs there in the in the NL Central. Moving now to the AL, Gene Segura won the AL final vote, the shortstop for the Seattle Mariners, 28 years old. The The former Brewer and Diamondback is having a career year for the for the Seattle Mariners. 86 games this year, he is hitting 329 with a 358 on base percentage and a 469 slugging percentage. He has hit seven home runs. He has 14 stolen bases. Um, he's only striking out 13.1% of the time. The one negative, I guess you could say about him, is he's not walking a lot. Um, at only 4.4%, but that's you know that's right in line with his career average. His career average is 4.7%, so it's uh, it's nothing crazy. It's nothing out of the ordinary. His BABIP is 362, but he's always carried a, an above average BABIP. His career average is 323. His weighted on base average is 355, but once again his his career is 320, so it's not completely out of the realm. Uh, his WRC plus this year has been 130. So the the Mariners have really benefited, especially because uh, as soon as Cano went down, and then with the suspension, and everything, you know, people kind of wondered how that offense would fare. But Segura has been one of the reasons why that offense has continued chugging along, and it's one of the reasons why the Mariners have been so good this year. And it's, he's really one of the main reasons why this team seems destined to break their extremely long postseason drought uh, this year. Which is very nice to see. It's it'll be awesome to you know I'm gonna knock on wood here. Uh, it'll be awesome to see the the Mariners in the playoffs uh, once again. I think it'll be a, a lot of fun. The other guy, uh, also from the AL West, that has been added to the All-Star roster is Jed Lowry, 34 years old, um, from the A's, middle infielder for that for that team, having a very solid season. He's hitting 290, 362, 501, a 370 weighted on base average, a 139 WRC plus. It's nice to see another Athletics player get recognized for what he's done for that team this year. As I said, it's a shame because if the Athletics were in the in the National League, hypothetically, uh, they would they'd be right there in the in the playoff race. Unfortunately for the Athletics, they sit right now at 52 and 41. That would be uh, it looks like one of the top three records in the in the National League. Unfortunately for the Athletics, the Red Sox are 65 and 29. The Yankees are 60 and 31. The Astros are 62 and 33, and the Mariners are 58 and 35. Uh, and the Indians uh, are going to win the NL Central or AL Central at 15:41. So the Athletics they have been one of the the better teams in baseball this year, but they just are uh, a victim of how extremely good the other teams in the AL are. But it's nice to see the the young talent uh, on the Athletics kind of shine, and the the old talent as well. I should say, obviously, Lowry's 34 years old, so it's not a not a spring chicken anymore. But uh, he's done he's done very well, and he gets recognized with a, another All Star appearance. Um, maybe some improvements to the All-Star game. I kind of wanted to hit on this just uh, just for a little bit, maybe ways to improve the, the All-Star game. I think that having it uh, on a Tuesday is not the, the best way to, to handle it. I really think that 
And so the way that MLB kind of markets it, it's it seems like they kind of market it, especially towards like, oh, the kids can see like all their favorite all-stars, this, that. Even though it's the summer and most of these kids aren't in school, um, it's, it, you know, it's I feel like you ho- hold it on a weekend and maybe hold it earlier. Um, it, it's it's my, that's my complaint for a lot of sports, especially when you get to like, you know, the NBA Finals or the World Series. The fact that some of these NBA Finals games are starting at 8, 8.30 um, and then some of the, the World Series games are not starting until 8 o'clock on like a Wednesday. It's a shame because then that's right during the, especially like, so using the World Series as an example, the World Series is during the school year for every kid. Um, so it, it's a shame because these kids, they can really only watch like a couple innings before, you know, uh, unless, you know, their parents are like mine where they said, yeah, you can stay up and watch the World Series. But, you know, some of these kids, they, they can only watch a few innings before like they have to go to bed or, or whatever, which is a shame. I, I really wish they would like kind of hold it like a little earlier um, just to let the kids watch it. And th- the same thing goes for the All-Star game. I wish they like, kind of held it like on a weekend, like maybe like a Saturday so that the kids could kind of kind of watch um, kind of watch and then maybe have the home run derby like on a Friday um, as well that way the kids could watch all that uh, and then you know it's just that's just that's that's one of the things we I talked about fan voting already um, I said maybe just weight it a little less um, than it than it currently is being used right now I said I said maybe use it as a component but you know it's maybe just don't use it like totally to, to name the starters for the all-star game. And it's, I don't know, that's really all I can think about uh, right now in terms of the, the All-Star game. I'm very glad that they got rid of the, the stipulation that, oh, whoever wins gets home field advantage in the World Series. That was so stupid. It's one of the stupidest rules uh, in baseball. And some people are going to say, oh, well, at least they were playing for something. It's an All-Star game. You shouldn't be playing for anything. It, the All-Star game, someone on a team... So. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. So hypothetically, look, look at the standings. Someone on, you know, a 31 and 61 White Sox team should not determine who gets home field advantage in the in the World Series. That's that's so incredibly like asinine that someone thought that that was a good idea whenever they implemented that rule. So I'm glad that they got rid of it because I can kind of watch the, the All-Star game in peace. Um but yeah, the, the All-Star game is coming up uh, in less than a week. Look forward to seeing it. The Phillies have only one representative in Aaron Nola. So I'm interested to see when he ends up uh, coming in um, at, at some point in the All-Star game. I think any other year, he's a he's a really good Cy Young candidate. I guess you could say he's a candidate this year. But with guys like Scherzer and DeGrom in front of him, I'd be surprised if he finished any higher than third, which is still a, which is still a nice accomplishment. But... Uh, he's just being kind of overshadowed, I think, by the, the two aces in Scherzer and DeGrom, which is fine. That's understandable. But that's really all I, want, all I want to talk about with baseball. I want to end the podcast with NASCAR. Woo, yeah, NASCAR, left turn, woohoo. Uh, so, as I said, I like to end the podcast whenever I talk about NASCAR. I like to use that at the end because I know that people are not uh, huge fans of NASCAR. Um, I know that's kind of, you know, a niche thing. So I decided to just, uh, you know, that's that's why I end the podcast with, with NASCAR. I think that's a good idea. So if you're going to leave, I want to thank you for listening to this point in the Ryan Waldis Sports Podcast. Uh, and be sure to catch the next episode coming soon. But for those of you that are still here and want to listen to NASCAR, I just want to talk about just a, a couple things. Uh, so they are at Kentucky this Saturday, uh, July 14th. The race starts at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It, you can find it on the NBC Sports Network. Um they are going to be using a new left side tire at uh, at Kentucky, um, which is which is great. Um, so when so Dale Jr. when he was still racing, obviously he's in the booth for NBC right now. When he was racing, um, one, there was one point after uh, Kentucky where he kind of was really upset with the with the tires, um, and he said that the reason that the race you know maybe wasn't as great was because of the tires. And he said especially the the left side tires. He said that they were they were too hard. Um, and when the tires are too hard, it, it it typically leads to a boring race. Whereas now they're kind of going with a softer compound, um, which is good because with the softer tires, that kind of means that the, the tire wear will increase. Um, the fall off will be a little better, especially at Kentucky, which is repaved recently. Um, and it's not going to be, you know, totally like, oh, this race is so much better than it used to be, but I think it'll, it'll help. And if you're in NASCAR's position, it's kind of something that you have to do. Um, you just, you know, trying to, to bring in new, new viewers and, and all that. So I think that it's, um, it's a good idea. I think that it will make the racing better. Um, I, I don't know how much better, but uh, I can definitely say, um, it'll make the race at least uh, a little better, um, 
So um, that that'll be exciting to see um, what the t the tire wear and the fall off will look like. Um, it, maybe it'll lead to a little pitch strategy um, later in the race. That's what I'm kind of hoping for. That's how the the race should. That's how the race could definitely be a little more entertaining. But uh, regardless, the other thing I want to talk about NASCAR here before we before we end the podcast is the Roval at Charlotte. So for those of you that are not aware. Uh, Charlotte, normally it's been a, a playoff race uh, in years past. It's still a playoff race, but they're not just using the oval this year. They're going to use the Roval. So it's the combination of a, a road course and an oval at Charlotte. Um, and it should be it should be really interesting. The, the really interesting thing about it is that it's a cutoff race for the chase, um, which, is, which is shocking that in the first year they're using the Roval, that it is, it's going to be a cutoff race, which is something that I would not have expected. Um, but if you take a look at the at the the schedule for NASCAR, so the final race of the regular season this year, which is something new, is is um, what one of my is is Indianapolis, which is something that they had not done before, but they decided to make it the cutoff race to to make the playoffs. So it's Indianapolis, uh, and then the the next three races are Las Vegas. That's the first race of the playoffs, which is new, followed by Richmond. And then the Roval is a is a cutoff race for that for for so for those of you that are that don't really know about NASCAR, um, the the playoffs they're they're running different segments. So there are three different sections of three um, races, and then the final race is like the championship. So Las Vegas, Richmond, Charlotte are is the first segment. Um, that's when after the Roval race you eliminate four drivers. Then Dover, Talladega, Kansas is the next segment. You eliminate four more drivers. Martinsville, Texas, and then ISM, which is the which is what Phoenix is. They just renamed it. You eliminate uh, four more drivers, and then you finally get to that final group of four. And that final group of four races for the championship at Homestead, Miami, uh, on the last for the last race of the season. That's on November eighteenth. Um, so that's how that's how NASCAR works. So the Roval this year is is a cutoff race. That's it's going to be really interesting. Um, because the, this is something that the drivers have never raced on before, but in, in an attempt to kind of bring in casual viewers and make things more entertaining, um, NASCAR opted to use the Roval at Charlotte um, to hopefully bring in some some new eyes to the to the sport, which is which is a good idea. Um, the drivers have said that it's it's really interesting. Um, so Casey Kane said, and I'm getting these quotes from an article on the the drive. Casey Kane said, "I'm not sure at this point there's going to be any passing." We'll have to see how it all plays out. The oval is part of it, but you have a bus stop coming up. Um, that's the, for the bus stop. Uh, it's for those of you that don't follow NASCAR. It's just a very slow part on the track. Um, you can you, a good. So if you look up Watkins Glen, um, that's that's a that's a good. You'll be able to see what a, a good like an example of a bus stop is. Um, you can barely get one car through there, not two. It's going to be technically tough, and we'll have to figure out those spots as we go. But I have no clue right now. Uh, Jimmy Johnson uh, agreed with with Kane, not not directly, but he said the same thing. Um, he kind of agreed that there's there's not going to be a, a ton of passing. Um, apparently, he was asked by NBC where the best place on the track to pass is, and Johnson said pit lane, which I which you know I have not seen. Uh, obviously, it's going to be well. We're going to have to see how the race plays out, but um, pit lane is probably going to be the best place from what I've heard from a lot of drivers. The other thing that both of them kind of said that. Uh, you know, mistakes are going to be, you know, huge. And it, it, people are already making mistakes. I, I've read that people are already spinning out um, because they think they can take the car faster into some of these turns, but they, they really can't. Um, so Jim, uh, Jimmy said, it's very easy to make mistakes and have big problems when you make mistakes. Race time is going to be a handful. Whereas Kane said, basically, if you make a mistake, you hit something. Um, so for for those of you that don't know, the Roval, um, normally Charlotte is a 1.5-mile track. The the Roval part is going to be 2.28 miles. Um, it'll be 109 laps. Um, the Bank of America Roval 400. Uh, it features a 35-foot elevation change, 17 turns, and two chicanes. Um, so I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I, some of the hardcore fans are like, "Oh, this is just a gimmick. It'll never work." This, that, and the other. I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be really neat. Uh, and if it doesn't work, then oh well. At least you can say you tried something new. But uh, the drivers, half of them have tested um, over the past couple days. The other half are going to test next week. I believe the date was July 17th. So we'll have to see what that group of drivers has to has to say. That'll just about do it for this episode of the Ryan Waldus Sports Podcast. I don't know if there will be an episode tomorrow on Friday, July 13th, but I can tell you that there will be an episode 
on July 16th, 100%. So if there's not an episode tomorrow on July 13th, there will definitely be an episode on July 16th when we come back next Monday. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. As a reminder, you can now listen to this podcast on CastBox. That is the newest service that's available to listen to the Ryan Wallace Sports Podcast. So definitely check it out on CastBox. Uh, along with that, there are eight platforms now that you can listen to the Ryan Wallace Sports Podcast. I can listen to it on Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can see all those services. You can just search my podcast name, Ryan Waldus Sports Podcast, on any of those services, and it'll pop up. Or you can go to anchor.fm slash Ryan Waldus Sports Podcast, and you can just click from there whatever service that you would like to like to use. So uh, also, you can check out my website at ryanwaldus.com. And check me out on social media. My normal handle is at ryanwaldus. Um, just converse with me. Uh, if you want to talk about some sports, if you want to talk about stuff that's not sports, you want to talk about music, video games, whatever, you want to give me suggestions about what to talk about on the podcast, if you have any questions that you want me to address on the podcast that you think would be kind of neat, definitely reach out to me there, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can also contact me at a contact form on my website as well. That's another option if you want to uh, contact me, but you don't really have any social media. Um, so definitely, definitely do that. Uh, of course, the fans are the big thing. I want to thank you all for listening. The The listening numbers have been way better than, than I ever thought they would be when I started this podcast. So I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, as I said, not sure if there will be an episode tomorrow, but if there's not one tomorrow, then we will catch up again next Monday. Thank you again for listening to the July 12th episode of the Ryan Wall Sports Podcast, and I'll catch you all again next time. Thanks. Thank you.